It's good to be here with all of you this morning. We appreciate your presence so very much. It is a privilege to worship God together, and I am honored, as always, to be your speaker. I'd ask you to bear with my voice. I don't know why I woke up so hoarse today, but I hope I don't lose my voice during the course of this lesson. I'll do my very best. Please bear with me. As an introductory text, I've chosen the book of Acts, the 27th chapter, and beginning there in verse 1. And when it was decided that they should sail to Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to one named Julius, a centurion of the Augustan regiment. So entering a ship of Adramidium, we put to sea, meaning to sail along the coast of Asia, Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica, was with us. This morning, I want to talk on a very important subject. I want to talk on biblical leadership and the characteristics of a true leader. And you might think that it's a strange place, the book of Acts chapter 27, to discuss a subject like leadership. But in this narrative, there are great things that we can learn from the great apostle Paul, a prisoner, the Bible says, and on his journey to Rome becomes a tremendous and terrific leader. Now, one of the most critical challenges, I think, that face the church today is the lack of strong, effective leadership. In fact, leadership remains one of the glaring needs, I think, in the church. People are often willing to follow God's vision, but too frequently, they have no exposure to either vision or true leadership. And you know, this is not just in the Lord's church. This is also in the world of Christian professing religions. In fact, statistician George Barna penned some sobering conclusions based on his research of Christian professing religions, and he wrote the following. After 15 years of digging into the world around me, I have reached several conclusions regarding the future of the Christian church in America. The central conclusion is that the American church is dying due to the lack of strong leadership. In this time of unprecedented opportunity and plentiful resources, the church is actually losing influence. The primary reason is the lack of leadership. Nothing is more important than leadership. Now, my goal today, my goal is to uh, discuss some things that would encourage us to practice transformational leadership. In other words, leadership that makes a difference in the life of other people. Now, I'm going to tell you, you may think of this and say, you know what? This sermon is for the men that lead. So I'll just kind of check out. This will be good for them. But I'm going to tell you, this applies to every single one of us. You might think, I'm not a leader. Surely I'm not. I'm a follower. I've actually heard from people that have said, you know, I don't really have a role. I just kind of sit. I occupy my seat. And I'm not a leader to anyone. But that's not true. In fact, you have an influence over somebody in your life that nobody else does. And if that's the case, it's very sobering if somebody is watching me in my life and I am a leader in their eyes. It is tremendous that I understand what it means to be a strong, effective leader. Well, I want to talk on the subject that corporate America brings up, and it's called the SNL or the Strong Natural Leader. This is actually things that they look at in the corporate world. A strong natural leader is characterized by the following ways. Number one, a strong natural leader is a visionary. 
That's somebody that looks to the future and plans for the future. A strong natural leader is one who is action-oriented, somebody that gets things done. Number three, a strong natural leader is somebody that's courageous. He's a risk-taker. Number four, he is energetic. In other words, he's a type A personality. He's the guy that is extremely driven. Also, objective-oriented and not people-oriented. I'm going to get back to this in just a minute. Because while this sounds like a really good idea, there are faulty uh, aspects of the strong natural leader theory in the corporate world. Here's another one. Paternalistic. In other words, he's the father in charge. Have you ever known the guy that was large and in charge? That's the paternalistic guy. Also, egocentric. He is someone that is self-absorbed. What else? Intolerant of incompetence. I mean, absolutely, we got to keep the level of excellence going on, right? And view self as indispensable. Lives with the illusion that the whole system that they're a part of will come crashing down without them. Now, here's some problems with the theory. It denies the primary requisite of biblical leadership. And that it is that you, you can only accomplish God's goal through God's people and not by doing it yourself. What else? The difficulty comes because, I like what one man said, you have to organize and lead a whole bunch of people who are all volunteers, none of whom you can command, all of whom you have to say, oh, please, and none of whom you can fire. And many of whom, when you make a mistake, are eager to let you know about it. I think all of us can relate to that. Now, I'm going to tell you something. There's something about being a leader. And I'm going to go back to these, uh, this chart here. It's true that we need to be visionaries. Absolutely. We have to have a vision or you can't move forward. We need to be action-oriented. That's true, too, and courageous and energetic and all of those things. But understand that we have to be people-oriented over objective-oriented. And I think a great leader is somebody that can get every aspect of all people doing their very best. I remember all the years that I coached football. I coached football for 12 years. And one thing that I learned when it was all said and done, that an effective coach is not someone that can get the most out of the star athlete. You know, it's easy to get the most out of a star athlete. In fact, if you're a coach and you got a star, he makes you look good. And sometimes in spite of you, a star athlete or a star team of athletes can make a coach look better than he really is. But if you want to be really effective, get the most out of that little guy over there, the third string guy that doesn't play much, but he does have a role. An effective coach gets the most out of every single person. And so does an effective leader. Objective oriented? No, we want to be people oriented. All right, problems with the theory, and uh, we move forward. Acts 27, verse 1, as we begin. We're talking about something that happened uh, when Paul, who had been a prisoner in Caesarea for two years, he was taken prisoner during his third missionary journey. And Paul had enjoyed great success among the Gentiles preaching the gospel. And because of that, the Jewish uh, opposition was great against him. He was guilty of absolutely nothing. He was arrested by authorities, and for two years he was in prison. Now, please make this 
If you're taking notes, write it down. But don't forget this. Have you ever noticed that Paul never said, I, Paul, a prisoner in Rome? Never. He never said that. You know why? Because there were no sustainable charges against him. He was guilty of nothing. You know what Paul said when he wrote to Philemon? He said, I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ. In other words, he was a prisoner because of what he preached. And when he took the gospel to the Gentiles and the Jews that rejected Jesus, they absolutely hated him for it. So what they do? They drummed up ridiculous charges. So... He's imprisoned, however you want to call it, jail or prison, but he is imprisoned in Caesarea for about two years. Now, as a Roman citizen, he could exercise his right, and that was to go to Caesar and make his appeal. And that's where this entire narrative begins and ends on the journey to make that appeal, appealing to Caesar. Now, i got to tell you, when you think about all the people that are on the ship, Okay, there's 276 men. And when Paul got on that ship, he's the lowest of the low. Everybody that was on the ship ranked higher than Paul. Let's talk about some of those that would have been there. Number one, there would have been a man that was a centurion. You know who centurions were? They were a man that was in command over a hundred soldiers. There would have also been ranking officers. There would have been soldiers there. There would have been a first mate. If there's a captain, there's always a first mate. And there would have been sailors there too. And Paul is at the very bottom of all of that. But you know what happens is we, we find that he emerges and he rises to the top. He comes from a position of weakness. He rises to the top because he emerges as a leader and people follow. Don't ever think that there's anything in the world that resembles a born leader. Have you ever heard people say he's a natural born leader? No, he's not. Let's talk about how you are when you're naturally born. You're an ultimate follower. You're in need. You're a taker. Little children. And it should be that way. They need, they take. They're the ultimate follower. They're not a leader. So you are not born into this world a born leader. What you are, you come into the world as a follower and in need and self-centered and all of that. And what happens is in life, things change. And sometimes out of the ashes rises a man or a woman in a position of leadership in life that you least expect. You know why? Because leaders emerge. They are developed and they emerge. And that's exactly what happens to the great apostle Paul. Let's go to verse 1 of Acts chapter 27. And when it was decided that we should sail to Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to one named Julius, a centurion of the Augustan regiment. Now, we there, I think, is referring to Paul, obviously, but the other we has to do with Luke. Luke wrote the, wrote the book of Acts. And so in this narrative, and when it was decided that we, and Luke is referring to himself and Paul, we should sail to Italy. They delivered Paul and some of the other prisoners to one named Julius, a centurion of the Augustan regiment. Also, in verse 2, So entering a ship of Adramidium, 
we put to sea, meaning to sail along the coast of Asia. Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica, was with us. All right. Adramidium was a city of Asia Minor on the coast of Mysia. Look at verse 3. And I'm going to sum up some things in just a minute, but let's go to verse 3. And the next day we landed in Sidon. Now this is very significant. Sidon was 70 miles off the coast of Israel, not very far at all. So they hadn't gone very far. Now watch this. In verse 3 also it says, And Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him liberty to go to his friends and receive care. Have you ever stopped to consider why it was that Julius, when Paul had not been on the ship very long, all of a sudden he says something like this, as I might paraphrase, You know what, Paul, you've been on the ship all day. You've had kind of a long day, so you can just leave. You can get off the ship, you can go to your friends, and gave him liberty to do that to receive care. In other words, to refresh yourself. Think of it this way. Paul was one of the most highly resented men in Jewish population in Jerusalem. Can you imagine what, it would have, what could have happened if Paul is released to leave the ship? If he's running loose? And really, as they came to Sidon, Julius lets Paul do that. In other words, Paul, you've been on the ship, you can go refresh yourself. I think what this shows is Paul was extremely trustworthy or worthy of trust. What an example. He's a prisoner. He is worthy of trust. And that really brings up principle number one of principles of leadership, and that is to be trustworthy. I'm going to get to these two things in just a minute, but let's talk about being trustworthy in this particular narrative. All right. Why is it such that all of a sudden, Paul being trustworthy is allowed to do it? I don't know what all that he did or said. We know in the narrative later a lot of things he said. But all I know is this. When Julius looks to Paul... He recognizes him as somebody, I can trust him. I guess in prison they call it trustees. And they're the people that are allowed to have liberties because they trust that they won't get in trouble, they won't do anything wrong, and they'll come on back if you trust them to go out. I remember uh, Lizzie lived in Ojai too, but there, there was an honor farm in Ojai. And I remember that that was a place that people that you trusted. And it was very minimum, minimum security. There was no fence or anything. Uh, no big barbed wire. And these were people that could serve their time at the honor farm. They were trustworthy or worthy of trust. I think there's something similar to the mindset of Julius that re realizes and recognizes that Paul was worthy of trust. But there's something else too. He was in prison for two years. He's allowed to go to his friends. Okay? So his... Julius trusted him, but if you ever considered, so did his friends. Early this morning, I was sitting in my office looking over this very early this morning. And I thought of something. How many times do people that are accused of something, whether they're found guilty or not, but just when they're accused of something really negative, their friends jump ship. I know of a man. I know exactly of a specific instance of that. He's a friend of mine. 
And within the last two years, he was accused of doing something that he vehemently denies. And I'm going to tell you, there's a difference. Some of his friends, and myself included, are still his friends. Let it play out. Not just all of a sudden have no more trust in the man, even though he's been your friend for a lot of years, and bail on him because he's accused of something that's very serious. How many times do people do that? These friends of Paul could have done that very thing. Now, wait a minute. What Paul do now? He's been in prison for two years. After all, he must be guilty of something. They didn't do that. He was trustworthy to Julius. He was also trustworthy to his friends. And he was able to go and be refreshed by them. Sometimes people doubt because, and lose confidence because of circumstances. And you know, I, I, I think about this idea too. I think about all the people in my life perhaps that may be better if, I'm, if I have any kind of influence over them. How many people could be better or worse based upon my confidence in them and my trust in them? Now listen, trust is earned. We get that, right? But having confidence in someone will spur people on to be better than they've ever been before. When you constantly doubt people, it causes people not to try. If you want to get people to go and strive for greatness, you have to have confidence in them. You have to demonstrate that confidence in them. Now, respect is earned, absolutely. But when they have earned it, you give it. And just maybe it raises the bar in their mind of the status that they want to shoot for to be better in the future than they've even been in days gone by. I'm going to tell you something. When it comes to being a good leader, leaders are servants. And one man said this, leaders who fail to practice servant leadership become self-serving. And by the way, nobody likes the guy that just bosses everybody around. Nobody likes that guy. And I'll just tell you, if you are a boss and you are a boss over anyone, I will tell you this. You can be a boss. You can be a coach. You can be a leader of all manner of things. Okay? If you're in a position of authority over anyone, I will guarantee you this. You will get more out of that person if they love, appreciate, and respect you than if they're afraid of you. You'll get a whole lot more out of that person out of respect. Now I'm going to talk about being a servant here. You know what Paul said? Paul referring to the apostles. Now the apostles were the greatest leaders ever. They were the ones that Jesus left on the earth in the early church when the church was established. They had to be walking Bibles and preach the gospel. We have apostles doctrine that was preached because the word of God did not exist. The New Testament didn't exist. So those things had to happen. They were the great leaders in the Lord's church. You know what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 4? He said, we are under rowers. You know what that is? That's the third level galley slaves. That's the guys all the way down in the bottom. By the way, that's where the rats lived. And these guys were under rowers, servant leadership. This is the picture that Paul is saying. We are under rowers. We are down there in the third deck. We are rolling all the way down to the bottom, we are rolling, rowing so the ship can move. Under rowers. This is one of my favorite stories in the Old Testament. One of the greatest examples of servant leadership, and it was Nehemiah. And historically speaking, 
In about 444 BC, the situation in Israel and Jerusalem was terrible. The city was in destruction. It had lain in that condition for over 150 years. The Jewish people had been outside of their captivity now for 80 years, but they still couldn't build or hadn't built the wall. A man had to come to the rescue and take initiative. He just happened to be over there in Babylon, and his name was Nehemiah. And Nehemiah said, I got to do something. And then there's five principles for taking initiative. And I'll get to the sixth thing in just a moment. Five principles. Notice what he does. Number one, he identifies with the need. I think that has to happen regardless of who we are and what we're trying to accomplish. If there's a need, we got to identify with the need. In other words, I see the need. A lot of people saw the need. They couldn't do anything. But I can identify with the need. I can do something about it. You know what he does? He came up with a solution. Now, sometimes we just sit back and think of the problem, but we don't come up with a solution. Okay? And i got to tell you, I'm going to step on my toes a little bit here too. Okay? Sometimes, as we flow through this... now identifying with the need, I can do something about it. Coming up with a solution, that's all great. He decided, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go to the king, and i got a plan. So what does he do? He takes action, and he doesn't. Okay. I'm going to tell you sometimes this gets all of us. We may identify with the need. We may even have a solution, but we never take action. It's kind of like the guy that always has a whole list of things we should do but does nothing. We should do this. We should do that. We should do this. We should do that. Oh, what are you going to do? Oh, nothing. It it, kind of gets all of us sometimes. Come up with a solution, and he took action. And then this is the one right here that I've had to work on, and I'm still working on. I think it's a weakness of mine. And that is he delegated responsibility. You know, sometimes we look to someone doing something And maybe they're green at it. Maybe they're new at it. And we think we can do it a little bit better, so we want to take the task away from them. It's kind of like, do you remember when your kids were little? And where they're sweeping something up in the backyard? You know you can grab that broom and do better than they can. Absolutely. But they need to learn. They need to know. So in time, they'll be as good as you are at it. That's a hard concept. Well, let me tell you about my shortcoming. What I've always done is I've neglected to delegate responsibility. That is not a good quality in a leader. We have to delegate responsibility so everybody else is involved. Everybody else is getting better too. But I love this. When he put together the entire thing, he came up with this plan. And he worked alongside the people. In this plan though, when he delegated the responsibility, he said to this family, you just build this section right here. And this family over here, you just build this section right here. And this family over here, this section right here. But he wasn't a boss. No, he got down there with them and he worked alongside the people. Oh, that's a great leader. Somebody that will do just that. A good leader, folks, is not someone that just bosses everybody and lines them all out. And then notice, don't you think that people would have saw Nehemiah and said, man, I want a great job, Nehemiah. No, he was resented. He was hated, and there was tremendous opposition. But you know what happened? This is amazing to me. Eighty years, they couldn't build the wall. Couldn't do it. 
Nehemiah, with proper leadership, identifying with the need, coming up with a solution, taking action, delegating responsibility, working alongside the people, you know what happened? They built the wall in record time in 52 days. They could, they did what they couldn't have done without him for 80 years. And they did it in 52 days. So, yeah, we have to have leaders like that that, that are trustworthy. But number two, we need leaders that have good judgment. And I'm talking about being cautious and careful and those that seek wise counsel. You know, there's a lot of things that we all have as shortcomings, perhaps, um, one of which is not mine. This is not my shortcoming, but I have a lot of shortcomings. But I was always raised to go and respect those that are older than we are and be able to accept their wisdom and their knowledge and their guidance. And I try as I go throughout and preach all over the country, I try to encourage young people to look to these precious older folks that have silver hair and wrinkles on their face as life's war maps and go to them and, and listen to their wise counsel like Proverbs talks about, hearty counsel. It's wonderful. A good leader could be a young person, but a young person that uses good judgment, being cautious, careful, and seeking wise counsel, asking for advice. You've heard me say this before, so it's not new, but I will tell you this. Every bad decision I ever made in my life, usually every one of them, there was always somebody there dumber than I was telling me I, I, I got a great idea. It's a great idea. That's not your friend. One that is wise will seek wise counsel and will use good judgment. In verse 11, listen to this. Nevertheless, in Acts 27, the centurion was more persuaded by the helmsman and the owner of the ship than, than the things which Paul spoke. You know why? Paul was just a prisoner. He was just a prisoner. He was of the lowest. 276 men, and he was at the very bottom. But leaders emerge. Number one, number, number one, uh, be trustworthy. Number two, be of good judgment. And number three, a good leader strengthens others. A good leader makes everyone around him better, makes everyone around him stronger and more effective. And so by speaking with confidence and authority, a leader can strengthen others. I want to note something here, too, in a negative way. You know, Hitler was a man that spoke of authority, but it was a, it was a tyrant. Just because you speak of authority doesn't mean a tyrant, okay? It's not what the, that's not what I'm talking about. But when you speak the truth in love, you speak it boldly. You speak the word of God boldly. And a good leader is somebody strengthening others, speaking boldly the truth of the word of God. A good leader will strengthen others. Now, there's three kind of people that leaders in the church have to work with. I don't like the term deal with. I like the term work with. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 14. That's what Paul said. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those that are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, and be patient with all. Unworthy or unruly, by the way, unruly means to walk disorderly um, so that they need some fences built, some parameters. Now, sometimes we have to do that from a negative standpoint. We have to warn people okay, that are unruly. 
But I want to talk about the second one, and that is comfort or encourage the faint-hearted. You know, some translations say feeble-minded, and that doesn't mean mentally irresponsible. Thayer says, these are those who are inclined to be easily discouraged in the presence of trials. And they need to be pushed along. You know what the third one is? The third one is those who need some special attention, upholding the weak. Some have less ability than others. And Paul said in Romans 15 and 1, we would have the stronger ones to support and encourage them. In, in verse 1 of, of Romans chapter 15, we then who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak and not to please ourselves. What else? What else? We have to be optimistic. Now, you know that I believe in this. You know I've said this many times. But I'm going to give you a quote here. Optimism within the bounds of reason creates energy, excitement, and hope. Now, I clarify that. Do you see that? Optimism within the bounds of reason creates energy, excitement, and hope. I'm not saying optimism regardless of the circumstances. In other words, the guy that's rose-colored glasses and is naive. I'm talking about within reason, based on fact. It's about perception. On the other hand, being pessimistic, we don't want that guy. Pessimism literally debilitates everyone. It literally sucks the life out of others. Paul said to them, be of good cheer. Let's get excited about this, Paul would say. And I have lost some slides. So that brings us to our final point. And that is, Paul say, uh, in Paul's case, he's an example of someone who never compromises obsoletes, things that are absolute. In Acts chapter 27, beginning in verse 22, Now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life. This is the encouragement here. But you only of the ship. For there stood by me this night an angel of God to whom I belong and to whom I serve, saying, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must have brought, be brought before Caesar, and indeed God has granted you all those who sail with him. The next verse, Therefore take heart, men, for I believe that God, it, I believe God that it will be just as it was told to me. Verse 26. However, we must run aground on a certain island. We must run aground on a certain island. In other words, these are absolutes. In verse 27, in verse 27, it says, Now when the fourteenth night had come, as we were driven up and down the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the sailors sensed that they were drawing near some land. And they took soundings and found it to be 20 fathoms. And when they had gone a little further, they took soundings again and found it to be 15 fathoms. Then fearing lest we should run aground on the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for the day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship, when they had let down the skiff into the sea under pretense of putting out anchors from the prow. In other words, Paul gave them absolutes. Got to stay in the ship, right? Got to stay in the ship. You know what they did? They pretended as if they were going to do just that and cast the anchor off the prow or off the front. 
but they were trying to get the dinghy, the skiff, and get it out of there because they were bailing out. And Paul knew it. Now, Paul said, it's going to be okay. It's going to be fine. The only damage and the only danger is the loss to the ship. Your life is going to be fine. It is as God has told me. Great encouragement. But it took faith on their part too, didn't it? So what they said is, no, we're going to bail out. We're going to act like we're throwing the anchor out the front, but we're getting in the dinghy and we're taking off. You know what Paul said? In verse 31, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Now I'm going to tell you something. It's really bad when the crew jump ship. It's really bad when the crew leaves. You know, how many times have you heard the saying that when a ship is sinking, it's the rats that jump first and all that? Well, I'm going to tell you, it's really bad when the crew bails out. I thought about this this morning. I remember a coach one time, and uh, it was in Bakersfield, and we were on the sidelines, and man, it was hot. And Lompoc High School came to Bakersfield to play us that night, and it was very, very, very hot. And we were used to the heat. In Bakersfield, we were okay. We were properly hydrated. But all these people that came from Lompoc, where it's beautiful all year long, weren't really ready for that. Okay? One by one, they're dropping. And then the medic that they brought, he went down too. And I'll never forget a coach standing next to me goes, man, it's bad when the medic goes down. You know, it's really bad when the medic goes down. It's really bad when the crew jumps ship. Paul knew that. Paul says, no, you've got to stay. you got to stay in the ship. Here's the rule. Here's the condition, he says. Leadership never compromises absolutes. Never compromises absolutes. When we have the truth of the word of God, we have to stand on the truth of the word of God and not compromise its absolutes. Sometimes people do. And that's how digression starts. And that's how things progress. And when I think about how all of us have a job to do, remember this, okay? Remember the conditions, remember the absolutes. The absolutes for them was, if you don't stay on the ship, you cannot be saved. Isn't there a picture there of something else? Can't you see the picture before I even say it? Paul said, you got to stay on the ship to be saved. And the word of God is telling us, you got to stay in the church to be saved. You got to stay in the ark of safety. You got to stay there. You got to be grounded there. You can't quit. You can't bail out. You can't get the dinghy and chuck out the back door. You can't do it. Now, what about some absolutes for us? That's not the topic for concern. I'm going to say this in closing. Just some absolutes. I'm going to give you three. These are things that we cannot compromise. Okay? And there's a difference, too, by the way, about traditions that we do in our life. And sometimes people look at traditions and they think what we do in the church, it's just tradition as traditional. No, what we follow is, and there's a difference, we follow apostolic tradition. In other words, that which is given by the apostles, that's from the word of God. Can't change any of that. Gotta stick to that. Those things are absolute. Like what? Worship. Can't change that. We have to do the absolutes. The items of worship that we participate in can't be changed. Those are absolutes. One loaf and one cup on the Lord's table. They are absolutes. We cannot change that. Can't do that. 
We can't bring instrumental music into the Lord's house and have that in our worship service. That's an absolute. We sing with the melody in our hearts to the Lord. All of those aspects of worship. Can't change it. Can't change the things that are given to us in the word of God. Also, something else too. We can't change how we spend the Lord's money. Can't change that. The treasury is for God's people. It's for widows, orphans, and needy saints. It's for the preaching of the gospel. It's not to set up orphanages. All of those wonderful things that people do, please get me here. All of the wonderful things that people may do to people or for people in the world, that's a wonderful thing. It's just not a work of the church. It's the work of Chris Osborne, Terry Osborne, Wade Branch, Frank Brancato. It's the work of us personally to take care of all those other things. But absolutes, we can't change that. Absolutes, the word of God teaches specific things that we must do with our funds. So these are things that we can't change, folks. And may I say this too? A good leader, an effective leader is somebody that understands that there's a need, is positive about the need, gets the most out of everybody, and is trustworthy. And those are the kind of people that we want to follow. I think sadly today, so many times people progress and drift in areas because they don't know any better because they didn't have effective leadership. Now I'm going to say in closing this final thing, and I'm, I'm going to praise the congregation here. I've been around here for, well, I've been married for 30 years. Plans Road has been my, con my home congregation for, I don't know, 20 maybe, perhaps. And one thing that is always constant over the years about this congregation was this congregation was always, always represented with good, strong leaders. Now, folks, we don't have elders here because we don't have a plurality of men that are qualified yet. But in the absence of elders, we've had to have leaders rise up. Men rise up, be leaders. Be the kind of leaders that they need to be. And the congregation has benefited greatly over the years because of that. Let's keep that going. Let's be strong, effective leaders. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.